This morning, February 10th, it is 2008, if you can believe that, and our message this morning is called Skin for Skin. If you'd turn your Bibles to Psalm 8, while you're turning there, there is an internet myth that is floating around. Lots of them, actually. Have you ever received uh, one that wants you to sign a petition because some evil woman has gotten God banned from the radio and we got to write the United States Congress? Yeah, I get that one once a week. Uh, get another one that says that there are two hitchhikers and uh, they picked up uh, or got in a car with somebody who said the trumpet is at the mouth and then the guy disappeared, right? I, all kind of strange things get emailed to me as a part of chains on a regular basis. Most of them are based in some truth. They're just misapplied. There are a lot of political ones floating around. Well, this one is based in truth that I'm going to share with you. It's about a conversation that Billy Graham's daughter, Ann Graham, had with a woman named Jane Clayson on the CBS Early Show. This was, if you could roll back in time, to September 13th of 2001, America was reeling because we had all watched images of American strength shattered. I was standing in a building at Halliburton watching on a television set those towers crumble. The security was missing. All of the people were whimpering. It was amazing. We couldn't believe what we were watching. And the nation was somewhat shocked. And I'm sure lots of messages have been preached on the subject. I'm not trying to be opportunistic by talking about 9-11. It's the question that people ask after a tragedy that interests me. And on this show, because this woman is Billy Graham's daughter, and her last name's Lotz, by the way. She's married, Ann Graham Lotz. The woman, Jane Clawson, put a question to her. And so that it's safe, so that the eyes of America are not peering at Jane, she says, lots of people want to know, right? Have you ever been asked a question like that? It's not me, it's my friend who needs to know. When we were teenagers and we were shy, that's, that's how we would ask people if they were interested, you know? I have a friend who likes you. Really? What's your friend? Well, he's a lot like me. How do, what do you think about it? <laughs> she said, lots of people would like to know. Religious people, non-religious people, how could God let this happen? Have you never heard that? My biological father was thoroughly drunk, sitting across the table from my pastor. And I was sure that if I could just get the two men in the same room, something miraculous would happen. And here comes the question. How could God let starvation occur in Africa? and billions of people around the world dying, blah, blah, blah. Have y'all ever been put in that situation? Have you ever been in that situation? Right now, a righteous young man in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, is struggling because his wife is dying of cancer, thyroid cancer. And everybody is praying, and they're hoping that this woman will be healed, and I happen to believe she's going to be healed. But if she's not, how many people will say, how could God let this happen? 
I've done funerals for children. I've seen all of those questions. And people write volumes of books about this to attack it from an intellectual point of view. I have no desire to do that. I'm not smart enough to do it. I want to tell you that the Bible considers the very same questions. Men of God in the Bible consider the very same questions. Did you all turn to Psalm 8? By the way, the part that is Internet myth about that conversation with Ann Graham and Jane Clawson is what they expound on. The question was asked, and Ann answered it, and I think she answered it well. She talked about what angered God and what didn't. But it just so happens that as the email goes from person to person, it seems to have picked up lots of things she didn't actually say. So if you want to research that, go research it. I'm not interested in telling you about the rest of the conversation. It's about the question. Psalm 8, verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. How awesome is that, saints? To consider that the work of God is stars in the heavens. That the work of God set even the earth on its axis. How big is that? Then comes the next thought. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. If you can move to the place in your thoughts where you can accept the fact that there is a benevolent God, there is a God up there who created everything, it is still an enormous leap to come to grips with the fact that He may care about you. How much have you been concerned about a single ant in a pile in your backyard? I'm always amazed. Every once in a while, it's almost always a woman. If kids are outside with a magnifying glass burning ants, guys walk right by it and go, hmm, hey, you can really catch them on fire with that thing? Cool. Every once in a while, though, some soft-hearted person actually cares about one of those ants and wants you to stop. I was driving down the road with a woman one time who had just been born again, and she demanded that I pull over, and I had no idea why. I came to a screeching halt, very nervous all of a sudden. I was only 18. She got out of the car and fussed at some boys in a yard that were stomping on bees. I couldn't have cared less about those bees. But now that she was born again, all of a sudden, she had a sensitivity that she had not had before. The psalmist asked, What is man that you are mindful of him? And is it a fair question? Do you care about what's going on here, God? When we see tragedy, is that a fair question? Well, that's what we'll consider today. I want to read you some others. Don't turn there. We won't have time because I'm a long-winded preacher and this is going to be long. Job 25, verse 5, is one of Job's friends. His name is Bildad. Be glad that you don't have friends like Job, and if you do have friends like Job, find new ones. Job 25, verse 5, Even if the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm. In Bildad's eyes, mankind were like maggots and worms standing before God. In Job 7, the 17th verse, Job asked this question. What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention? That's a little different question. <laughs> Job saying, there's a bunch of us. Why are you messing with me? It's interesting that as things happen in our lives and we watch the news, we want to know how God could let something happen. And when something happens to us, we want to know, why is God doing this to me? 
Job 10 is a scripture I do want you to turn to. This might be the height of human arrogance, but it is a question worth considering. Tell me when you're in Job 10, saints. In Job 10, verse 4, Job is actually speaking with the God of the universe. And these words come out of his mouth. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees? Now, if you want to know what Job's attitude is here, if you need the context, all you need to do is think about something. When you were a teenager, did you ever look at your parents and say, you don't understand in anger? Did you ever have a boyfriend or a girlfriend that your parents didn't approve of? And you thought, y'all just don't get it. Come on, saints, has that ever happened? I'm the only one. Yeah. Actually, my parents loved Jennifer. It was all those that came before her. Yeah, that's right, it was Jennifer's parents. Anytime your parents did not deal with you in what you thought was an equitable fashion, did not something well up in you that thought, they're old, out of touch. They just don't get it. Y'all are looking at me like I'm an alien here. Oh, yeah. Those of you that have teenagers now, how often do you look into their eyes and see contempt for your very existence? Maybe some before teenagers. This is because what is bound up in the heart of mankind is rebellion. It's Judah, what is the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother, and is there a promise that goes with it? So that it may go well with you and you will have a long life. A commandment had to be given to children to honor their father and mother. And then a benefit had to be associated with it so that they would take it seriously. Why is there no commandment that says, Fathers, mothers, love your children? Why does the commandment go from the bottom up to the top? Saints, it's because mothers and fathers naturally love their children. But children must be taught to love their parents. Love naturally falls to gravity. It rolls right downhill from the highest authority to the lowest authority. But when you're at the bottom, it is the most unnatural thing in the world to reciprocate that love. This is why you can change a child's diaper for years and years and years. They can throw up into your mouth. You did that. And then they can look at you with contempt. Job is crying out like a spoiled child. You don't understand what it's like down here, God. Where you are, it's perfect. Where you are, nothing goes wrong. You don't know what it's like to be afflicted. It's very interesting that in this book, I mean, how ironic, a man is leveling a charge at God. You don't have eyes like I have. You don't know what it's like to have this kind of weakness. That there is someone else leveling a charge at Job. And it's not God. Flip a couple pages to Job 2. Job and God have had 
I'm sorry, Satan and God have had several interactions at this point where God suggested that Satan consider Job. And Satan's come to a conclusion and he has leveled an accusation in the fourth verse of the second chapter. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. Stop. Look at me. Bible commentaries will lead you astray. Oh, this is a proverb. It's a saying. It's a colloquialism, not true. <laughs> this is very literal, what he's saying. Skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. What Satan is suggesting to God is if his life is on the line, if it's being taken from him, there will be no love in him for you. He loves himself more than he loves anything else in this world. Satan understood something about mankind, inherently selfish. I want you to notice how God skillfully accepts this challenge, but modifies it. Skin for skin, Satan replied, and man will give all he has for his own life. What is on the table is a man's life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Satan wanted the opportunity to take the man's life from him and see what his reaction would be. God says, very well, but don't touch his life. In other words, you can push him to the brink, but you cannot take it from him. You remember that. Satan tried to make a bar barter, a bargain, skin for skin. And we'll come back to that. Man accuses God of indifference and a lack of understanding. And Satan accuses man of extreme selfishness. Mankind, when he's being afflicted, is crying out, You don't understand. They're little naked babies with wings and powder puff clouds in your kingdom. Down here, it's rough. Psalm 144, 3, I'll read it says, O oh Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you would think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. Part your heavens, O oh Lord. Come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Second Chronicles 6.18, Solomon is standing before the prospect of a temple. It says, But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain Him. How much less a house that I will build. Mankind has cried out that God Himself would do something about the injustice on the earth. That He would part the heavens and come down, one psalmist says, so that the mountains themselves would be set ablaze. Wouldn't you think if you saw that it would fix all of your problems? And yet it's happened and it didn't. When Job says, do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see like a mortal does? What he is crying out for is the incarnation. What he is crying out for is that the God who is beyond fathoming would experience something as a human being. Turn with me to John 1.
Next time somebody says, how could God let this happen? I hope you'll hear things today that you can reflect on. Not to answer the skeptic, but to be fully assured in your own heart that our God is not indifferent and He is not unable to sympathize. And He is certainly not standing by passively. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Of all of the ways that John could have introduced his letter to mankind about the works of Jesus, he wanted you to understand in the foremost of your mind that the way Jesus pre-existed His body was that He was the Word of God. In our Foundations class, I asked John what his first car was. I still haven't forgotten it. It was a 1998 Delta, right? Delta 9888. A Delta 88. And he began to describe for me the colors and what the seats were like. And as those sounds were leaving his vocal cords and going through the air as energy and hitting my ears, and my brain was interpreting that, an image appeared in my mind. And I could see the thing that John was speaking of. In the beginning, there was the Word of God. Jesus is the very thoughts, the very energy of God's mind. Now, I'm not trying to get new agey on you here today. There is a purpose for this. Look at the 14th verse. The Word, the expression of God's thoughts. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Is this not what Job asked for? You do not see as a mortal sees. Do you have eyes of flesh? Well, suddenly, He does. We have seen His glory, the glory of the One and Only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's never been another like Him. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. From the fullness of His grace, we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, one blessing. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Another blessing after the first. One blessing after another. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Job wants to say, you don't see it down here. If you knew what was going on, you would surely find a problem with it. He actually charges God with a lack of understanding of the problem. So God's very thoughts put on flesh, and He is looking from the point of view of a human being. Walking around somewhere probably between five foot and six foot tall somewhere. Genetically, an Israeli. In his substance, God. And he had one purpose. To make the Father known. When mankind cries out, how could God let this happen? What would God do about that? Why doesn't he do anything? Now we have God in the package of a human being and you can see how He reacts to everything. When you read the Gospel of John, what you are getting insight into is the very heart of God 
via Jesus' actions. So when you look at the miracles that are in John, when you look at the interactions that are in John, what you see is not, what would Jesus do? How corny. How about this? What did Jesus do? We don't have to ask, what would Jesus do in this situation? He already put Himself in every situation you will ever face. And the verdict is in. He is light. He is the life, the abundant life that God has given. And we have a choice. This world is shrouded in darkness. Before us in Jesus, we see an example. One of the very first miracles that He does is He lets this Israelite named Philip, I'm sorry, Nathaniel, know that his eye has been on him for a very long time. One of the things that Job is crying out from the beginning is, what, you don't see this? You don't see what's happening here, God? As if God is unaware of his plight. The very first thing that Jesus does is says, here's an Israelite in whom there is nothing false. I saw you while you were sitting under a sycamore fig tree, letting us know He has been observing our lives. As we go into John 2, He takes ordinary things and does extraordinary things, and I love it and I preach about it all of the time. He takes ordinary water and He makes extraordinary wine, showing that God can take a troubled situation and do something glorious with it, something beautiful, something unexpected. But this still does not deal with the heart of the issue. We find a Bible anomaly for some here. If you'll pick up with me in John 2, starting in the 12th verse. Y'all awake today? This will get better and better if you give it your whole heart, I promise. In John 2, starting in verse 12, after this, He went down. Who's He? (laughs) The Word that became flesh. What would God do in this situation? Well, what did Jesus do? In that situation. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and mother and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. (laughs) So he made a whip out of cords, and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? I want you to understand this. As miraculous as Jesus is, as full of power as Jesus is, The Bible does not say He spoke the word whip and it appeared. The idea here is that He formed and fashioned a whip. I imagine that took a little time. He had to go find some strands of whatever He used to make it. He had to sit and contemplate it. What is God like? God is like someone who will see injustice and work in the background to do something about it. And when the day of confrontation comes, whip in hand and ready, he took action. The reason this is somewhat of a Bible anomaly, by the way, what would God do? (laughs) In some cases, he would make a whip and strap a beating 
upon people. God is love. Well, this God of love used a whip on human beings. Is that tough for you? Is that theologically distant from your mind? How would you feel about your father if he was such a pansy he would not discipline you? Hmm. Did you have a daddy like that? I guarantee you, you didn't respect him if you did. He may have been a good friend, but he was a poor father if he never disciplined you. Our God allows things to occur in the human race, that he is working in the background, making his whip. And on a day of judgment, he will set it straight. But I want to tell you something. This is a Bible anomaly for some, because it is clear that this is the second thing that Jesus ever does here. John makes it a point that the miracle at Cana was the first of his miraculous signs in this area. We have our very first Jewish Passover. That really points to the first year of Jesus' ministry, doesn't it? Jews have Passovers every year. They never skip a year, do they? Turn with me to Matthew. We need to examine what about upset God and see if we can glean, glean insight from it. You in Matthew 21? In Matthew 21, when you get there, tell me, say there. When you get to Matthew 21, what you see is a title. The title says, Triumphal Entry. Did that happen in the first year of Jesus' ministry? Did Jesus, after only 12 months of ministry, walk into Jerusalem and they receive Him as a king? It didn't. How many years did Jesus minister? Somewhere between three and four years. Some Most people say three and a half years, right? Huh. What's the 12th verse say? <laughs> Jesus went to the temple area. He drove out all who were buying and selling there. He turned over the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, He said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. How do you reconcile those two facts? Well, surely the Bible is a good book among many, but here, obviously, John got his events out of order. Because we have Matthew and we have Mark, and they both record this in the third year of Jesus' life. Doesn't this sound like the same event? Doesn't it? This so happens that when you turn to Leviticus 14, and if you want to turn there, you can. I'll tell you about it, though. That God says, when you encounter a house in the place where you're going, and there is a destructive mildew in that house, a greenish destructive mildew, you send a priest to the house. He's to order the house totally emptied. And once it's emptied, he's to go in and inspect it. And if what he finds on those stones is a greenish spreading mildew, he's to order it scraped. And then you shut it up for a perfect period of time, seven days. Then he's to go back, order it emptied again. And if he still finds the greenish mildew has spread, he says you throw every single stone down. Don't leave one on top of the other. Why is God upset when He goes to the temple? What does He say here? What does Jesus say to Him? My Father's house is supposed to be a house of 
for the nations. The Scriptures he's quoting come from Jeremiah 7 where God says you're supposed to be a house of priests. And instead you filled yourself with selfishness and murder. You've taken something that was a house of concern for all of mankind and you have made it a den of thieves, Jeremiah 7 said. And Jesus is quoting it. What is he so upset about? Well, it so happens that people who are aware of their sin, who know that they need to do something about their sin problem, who live 80 miles to the north, can't carry their bull sacrifice or their goat, or if they're very poor, a dove, all the way to Jerusalem. So enterprising religious leaders made it easy for them. They set up right there at the temple where they would need these sacrifices a market. And their exchange rates were wonderful. See, the law of God said if Damon was going to go from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem and he couldn't carry his bull the whole way there, he could sell his bull in Galilee, take the silver and go to Jerusalem and buy another bull of equal value so that he would have a sacrifice. The problem is when he goes all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, the exchange rate has doubled because they know he's in a bind. It's a lot like selling fire or firewood in the coldest part of winter or plywood in the middle of a hurricane. God wanted his house to be a house of prayer, concern, caring for all of the nations. He wanted it to be a center where people would learn about the nature of God's concern for the nation. And the preachers of Jesus' day had turned it into a house of extortion. You need to do this because God requires it of you and it's going to benefit me in the rate of exchange. Come on, saints, you've never seen that, have you? Well, what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He sat down and patiently made a whip out of cords. And he went in and beat the tar out of them until they ran from him. How could God let this happen? He's just making his whip. How many of you know the passage in Ecclesiastes? A a threefold cord is not easily broken. Is he talking about cords? It's Ecclesiastes 4.13. Is he talking about cords? He's talking about the way God intertwines people's lives. We are the hands and feet of God on the earth. I'm not suggesting that we are militant. I'm suggesting that the question is not how could God let this happen. The question is how could God's people let this happen. Maybe it's time we stand up and take responsibility. Jesus has demonstrated for us the perfect life. We know what we should do in every situation. The question then remains, why do we not do it? Skin for skin. What an interesting concept that is. Skin for skin, Satan replied. I'm reading to you. You can just listen. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to his face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Satan wanted to make a bargain with God, skin for skin. He seemed to agree, but then didn't trade lives. 
Maybe that's because it would be God who gave His skin to save our skins. When you want to know what the heart of God is in a situation where you see injustice, all you have to do is realize there is an accuser who wants to prove you selfish like that spreading green mildew. And God stepped in and instead of every stone being thrown down from you, He allowed the temple of His body to be destroyed for your benefit. He traded His skin for yours. Romans 5.1, please turn there. Peter tells us we are the stones of the living temple. Stones. We deserve to be thrown down. By the way, we can talk about that Jewish temple being filled with a poor exchange rate. We can talk about it being filled with a centeredness instead of a concern for the nation. What does the New Testament call your body? A temple. What is your life concerned with? Is your house concerned with the nation? Concerned with all the people around you? Or are you only concerned with the rate of exchange and how it benefits you? Do you only do something for your buddy if he will return the favor? Do you calculate your servanthood? I will serve them here if they will serve me there. When you're little kids, it's so easy to spot. Everybody suddenly wants to play with the kid that has the new Sega, right? New PlayStation, new four-wheeler. When you're adults, it's much more calculating. You don't realize how many friends you have until you buy a pickup truck. Everybody wants to move. Skin for skin. Romans 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through trust, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Verse 6 could not be more important. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. His skin for yours. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How could God let this happen? Well, saints, he's demonstrated his willingness to fix the problem by taking on a human form with all of its restrictions, seeing mankind firsthand experience, and what did they, what did we do to him? Killed him. The third chapter of John is very revealing about how God stands with mankind. A religious leader comes and does what religious leaders do. Oh, good teacher! <laughs> Woo! Esteemed colleague! Pastor! Reverend, His Highness, let me kiss your ring. We know that you come from God. Who knows? He said, we know. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. We know that you came from God. Nobody could do what you do 
unless they did. Jesus looked at him and tried to get him three different times to understand his state. He was not a colleague. He was not in right standing with God. He said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom. To this religious leader who thought he was in the life of God, what this showed was that he was dead already and needed to become alive. He moves on from there and says, you don't seem to understand this process I'm talking about since you asked me that stupid question about re-entering your mother's womb. He said, the kingdom of God is like the wind. He quoted Ecclesiastes 11.5 to him. He said, since you don't understand how a body is formed in its mother's womb, you cannot understand the workings of God there like the wind to you. A book that Nicodemus was familiar with. Jesus looks him right in the eye and says, you are Israel's teacher? With a certain sarcasm. He's trying to get Nicodemus to understand the state that he's in. You're diseased, buddy. Something's wrong. He goes on to explain that he is like the time period in Israel when they're being devoured by snakes and had to look up at a symbol of sin to be cured. And the man doesn't get it. How could God let this happen? Friends, it's already happened and it's our fault. The moment sin entered the world because of our disobedience, every evil that is possible was birthed because of us. God didn't let it happen. We did. He is the one that is offering His skin for our skin. He is the one that took the adversary up on a challenge and said, yes, very well then, but don't you take their lives. I have the life to give. He gave His life for hours. How could God let this happen? He is fixing the problem, saints. He's making His whip. We just have to get ready. We have to be a part of His program. I love Hebrews. Hebrews brings it right home to Ericville. Turn to Hebrews 2. His skin for our skin. Tell me when you're in Hebrews 2 so I know when to start. The right side of the room is there. The left side is slacking. Brandon. <laughs> Don't you love small churches? We're contemplating a larger church. <coughs> you are the church. We're contemplating a larger building. And it quite literally makes my skin crawl. What is important, saints, is that we are with God. Our surroundings are totally unimportant. The trappings of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, all the mildews that can grow inside of us if we are not careful are completely unimportant. It's time to scrape our stones. It's time to fill ourselves with concern for others and come hell or high water stand with God. You know, in Hebrews 2, skin for skin. Hebrews 2, 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity. Job cried out, You're not like me, dude. You're somewhere way up there. I can't see you. Do you see what's happening here? I'm hurting. And so He shared in our 
humanity. Did Jesus cry? Yes. Yes, absolutely so. Shortest verse in all of the Bible, recorded in Luke. Jesus wept. Why did He cry? He saw death's effects on mankind. Did Jesus laugh? Yes. He also leaped for joy. He had emotions, just like we do. He shared in our humanity. Did He get hungry? Did He get tired? John 4 says, tired as He was from the journey. Did He have to learn what He didn't know? Yes, Luke says He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with man and God. When we think about Him, we need not strip Him of His humanity. He shared in our humanity. Do you know what that means? That means when you're struggling, fighting with an urge that is bubbling within you that you don't want to have, He knows what it is like to struggle and can teach you to win because He never failed in His struggle. He was a perfect straight-A student, but He still did all of the coursework that you have to do. Therefore, now, since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by His death He might destroy Him who holds the power of death. How could God let this happen? He's not. He's just making His whip. Get ready. If it takes a couple thousand years to make it, it's probably a good one. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels He helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason He had to be made like His brothers. Brother. What's a brother? (laughs) If we're brothers from another mother, what are we really? Peers. He became like one of us. Philippians says that He set aside His former glory. He limited Himself like us so that at times He literally asked a question and the theologians cannot handle it. You mean He didn't know? Absolutely. He says He didn't know sometimes. He said, who touched me? I felt virtue go out from me. Who touched me? He struggled with things just like we do. For this reason He had to be made like His brothers in every way in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in His service to God. That He might make atonement for the sins of the people because He Himself suffered when He was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. God is not indifferent. He has gone through every struggle known to humankind. So that when we struggle, He is able to sympathize. He knows what it is like to yearn. He knows what it is like when He saw people filled with shame. He never gave in to a sinful desire, ever. That sounds like the kind of guy that you could use His help, doesn't it? Flip to Hebrews 4. We'll read you two verses out of that and then we've got to get on with the rest of the message because y'all will be getting hungry and Jesus is not unable to sympathize with that. It took Him 40 days. It hadn't taken you 40 minutes, but He's not unable to sympathize with that. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have this great high priest who has gone through the heavens... <laughs> you remember Joe's cry? You're not a man. You don't see like I see. 
You're way up there. Well, Jesus came through the heavens. The psalmist said, would you part the heavens and come down? And God said, yes. Yes, I will. Therefore, since we have this great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the trust we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. You don't know what it's like to be unemployed. Well, apparently he does. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way. Now, you could be some kind of sicko filmmaker and go find nasty rock stars to depict ugly things about Jesus because of a verse like this. And yet, somehow, I think they missed the mark. When it says he's able to sympathize, that does not mean he did them. It means that he thoroughly understands our humanity. I'm not suggesting that Jesus had unwholesome thoughts so that he could sympathize with our unwholesome thoughts. I'm saying that he knows what it is like to be in a human body full of frailty and to have to lean on the power of God. Weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16 could not be more important. In fact, if you don't have it marked in your Bible, mark it, please. If you don't have it memorized, memorize it. If you want to write it on your forehead, that would be just fine with me. About a fifth of the world's population puts ridiculous things on their forehead that symbolize ridiculous things. This at least says something good. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why can you approach the throne with confidence? Because He understands you. That's not an excuse to get it wrong. But when we sit there and we say, well, I I messed up in this area and how can I now? What do you mean, how can you now? He knows you. He knows what your struggle is. He's watching you carefully. He put on a suit of flesh just so that you would know He understands you. Do you really think that God has experienced humanity to know what you were going through? He designed you. Why do you think He experienced humanity? To show you He understands. The incarnation is about Him laying His hand upon man and upon God and making peace between the two. He did what we couldn't do. He did it for us, for our benefit. How many times has the devil told you, ah, because you saw that commercial and you had an evil thought in your heart, how can you now go to God? How many times, ladies, have you desired something in a shopping window? And after you realized that it wasn't good for you and how long you dwelt on it, did you then think you were somehow distant from God? What does this verse say? Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why confident? He knows where your weaknesses are. He knows them better than you. And He loves you anyway. It wasn't when you were righteous that He gave His skin for your skin. It was when He knew you were wretched and sinful. Guys, you may not be where you're supposed to be. I'm certainly not. But you've got to be further than you were when you first met Him. If not, get out of here. Quit wasting our time. The kingdom is about those who will force their way into God's will. What you force your way past most is condemning thoughts in your own sinful nature. I can't preach. 
You know what I was thinking yesterday when so-and-so said that to me? I can't preach. I'm not fit to give counsel. You know how many times y'all have been sitting in front of me in a marriage counseling and Jennifer and I had been in a fight? Does that disqualify us? Or does it make us more able to understand what you're doing? But the devil's right there saying, how could you say that? You don't do that. So I may not have yesterday, but I will today, devil. Watch that. Do you feel that slight pressure? That's my heel on your head. With confidence, saints. Confidence. The church lacks confidence in who we are because we don't understand what He's done for us. We lack confidence that we are righteous. We lack confidence to make His decisions because there are times we're still holding back parts of our lives. Give Him all you have, weaknesses and all, and you can come to His throne confidently. You can stand it. When Elijah faced down the prophets of Baal, do you honestly think the man had never sinned in his life? So how does he stand and know that his God will call down fire? How does he do that? Because he was confident in what God was doing for him. He knew him. And he knew God knew him. There was no part of his life he was hiding, hoping that God didn't see. The best thing we could do Look in the mirror of God's Word. Realize where we fall short and tell Him. Tell Him. Shout it from a rooftop. It may make you feel better to tell other people. Then the devil has no power over you. None. He says you're weak and you say, Oh, yeah! And in my weakness, He's made strong. You want some more? I'm not somebody who does not struggle, saints. And yet for 15 years, somehow or another, God has taken this poor preacher and caused me to overcome. And if we take inventories of our lives, I bet I'm worse off in a lot of ways. There's a stubborn streak in our family. And out of all of them, I might have the hardest head. And yet God hadn't given up on me. And I can come to Him with confidence. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He knew you would be there. He knew you would be there because He experienced your humanity. He knew you would need Him and guess what? He likes it. He likes it. When we recognize our need, He likes it. In John 3, a man comes to Him with flattery and standing and all of those things. But he did not recognize his need after Jesus demonstrated it over and over and over. He had some selfish mildew in him. That's why even though he knew Jesus, who he was, he came at night. But there was a woman at a well the very next chapter who's in broad daylight and her heart is being laid bare before him and she finds mercy because she needed him and she knew it. God is moved by our need for Him. Turn with me to John 6. How to preach all I want to preach in the time I'm given. John 6. See, I'm teaching foundations class on Monday nights. Y'all are, some of you are ahead and some of you are missing out. John 6. Tell me when you're in the 15th verse. Somebody say, I am there. Good. Y'all at least following along. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Even people that loved him tried to manipulate him. 
and force him to do what they wanted him to do when they wanted him to do it. Now, I know none of us can relate to that. You never worked a conversation around. You never pushed on somebody that you love to get your own way, have you? You know good and well she doesn't want to eat seafood, but you want seafood. (laughs) That one struck a little too close to my own home. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, (laughs) it's dark, the waters are rough, and how far have they rowed? Three or three and a half miles. The Gospel of Mark says, Jesus was watching them, and they were straining at the oars. You ever been on a canoe trip? That's a canoe, not a boat. Paddling is hard work. And paddling with your friends, boy, that's harder work. A friend of mine named Bob Paroli said after 20 years of marriage, he wasn't sure his marriage was strong enough to go on another two-person canoe trip with his wife. He said, when I paddled on one side, she got on that side, and we went in circles. I said, honey, the other side, and we switched at the same side. And then at the moment of rapid, she panicked and left him, and the canoe turned over. He said, I don't want a godly camping trip to produce a divorce. They were straining at the oars in the middle of the night for three or three and a half miles. And this is a, a ship with, metal, with wooden planks and metal bandings. It's big. It's not a fiberglass canoe you can lift above your head. I've been in this lake. I was one time swimming out in this lake and I got carried away and was a little far from shore. And one of those little birds with a pointed head like a duck came up out of the water and I thought it was the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> I didn't walk on the water. I'm not going to claim that. But I got, I, I got to the shore pretty quick. I can't imagine being out. It's 18 miles across in some places. They're out there in the middle struggling. Three, three and a half miles. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were terrified, but he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him in the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Thanks. He put on humanity like us. He's in the same boat with us. When we realize that He made Himself like us so that we might be made like Him, when we realize we are in the same boat, all of a sudden the storms of life don't bother us so much. You know why? Jesus is in the boat. And what we strained all of our lives to do and couldn't do. (laughs) One time I was going to do push-ups to quit cursing. I was about 17 years old. I could do a couple hundred push-ups in one sitting without stopping, but I could not quit cursing. Then I saw Jesus walking on the water and we got in the same boat. And He sympathizes with my weakness. And He helps me control my tongue. Now I can go months without cursing. Lest I hit my hand with a ham. No, I learned to say bless you in those situations. The Jews taught us that. Bless you, O God, for pain. It teaches me I am alive. 
how could God let this happen? What are you talking about? He's plunged himself in the middle of it. He's strapped it all around him so that he can fix it. Just because we don't see the end result yet doesn't mean he's not working on it. Saints, I'm convinced that God has always watched us. He's considered everything that we do. I'm going to read you a couple more scriptures. Psalm 33:13 says, From heaven the Lord looks down. He sees all mankind. He wasn't just watching Nathaniel. He's watching all mankind. From His dwelling place He watches all who live on the earth. He forms the hearts of all. And He considers everything they do. He's watching to see whether you want to be part of the solution or whether you want to be part of the problem. Whether you'll accept His skin for your skin or whether you want to side with the accuser who just wants to take your life from you. So, well, how could I side with the accuser and just want him to take my life? Oh, every time we run around taking others from them, destroying their reputation, murdering them in our thoughts. We sided with him. Ephesians 2 teaches us that everybody who is in the world and has not been filled with the Spirit of God is subject to the spirit of disobedience. They're all running around murdering. How could God let there be such a problem in the world as what's going on in Darfur? Aren't our Hollywood stars upset about Darfur? As if the wickedness in their own hearts is not as evil. It just manifests in different ways. This world is condemned already. Next time you see a sign that says John 3.16, go read John 3.17 and 18. There's a verdict. The world stands condemned already. It's into that situation that Jesus plunged Himself. Into a condemned, dying world. He didn't come to pronounce death upon it. He came to one that already was in death and said, you know what, if you're willing, I can take you out of it. Not out of the world, out of death. We act like we were healthy and then gave our lives to Jesus. There's not one of you that didn't have a deathbed conversion. Not one of you. There's not one of you that doesn't have a convict prisoner conversion. We're all dying at the ravages of sin. We're all trapped by a sinful nature, imprisoned by it. And yet, for the grace of God, He stepped right down into all of that mess with us, not as God, as a peer, who in His very nature and actions declared Himself to be God. problem with people recognizing Jesus is He looked too much like us. No beauty, no majesty to draw us to it. A man who is lonely and acquainted with grief, but he doesn't understand you. You're so special. You're so unique. Your problems are so much unlike that of the rest of the human race. Isn't that what the devil tells you? If only they had had some psychogenic drugs for Jesus. Something to help him control his mood swings. 1 Samuel 16, 7 reminds us God, He doesn't look at the outward appearance. He's not looking at the surface of things. He looks at man's heart. If we were willing, if we could just stop trying to justify ourselves for a little while, we could see God's heart in every situation. Turn with me to Luke 16. We're going to read Luke 16 then probably Luke 10 and quit. But Luke 16 is a time when He addresses why the Pharisees don't get it right. And not just the Pharisees. I shouldn't say that. Some of them did get it right. Nicodemus, who didn't understand his position, 
later fights for Jesus, then in the end helps bury him. And church tradition says he went down as a hero in the faith. We're all recovering Pharisees if you think about it. Luke 16, verse 14. The Pharisees who loved, loved the money. Show me the money. There ain't never been a pastor like that. Never been a pastor full of mildew in his house extorting people. Never been a pastor on TV that will take your last dime so that you can receive God's blessing with an unfair exchange rate. Making it seem as if it's your duty to God to buy his suits or jets or Rolls Royces. Sure, that's never happened. The Pharisees who loved money. I don't know why it's more fun to say the money, but it is. <laughs> the Pharisees who loved the money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. We need to look at our lives honestly. We need to look at the narrow path that Jesus has laid out. He's not unsympathetic with how hard the journey is. We've already covered that. But it requires some forcefulness to push your life into the kingdom of God. It's free, but it costs you everything. Every evil desire, every moment where you would lose your religion. We have to be willing to give up everything to enter in that narrow way, and it is takes a forceful person because we're used to getting what we want when we want it. What would Jesus do? How could God let something like that happen? In Luke 10, we had a very famous story. And I'm in John 10, but we need to go to Luke 10. I'm a pastor and can't find the book of Luke. Is it not written? In Luke 10, we have a pretty famous story that I will not beat to death or belabor, but I want to ask you to read this in a slightly different way. We're used to reading this exchange and thinking about what people are supposed to do in this exchange. As we read it, I want you to think about what God has already done. On one occasion, this is the 25th verse, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to ask Jesus, Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? <laughs> There's another fun little side effect for you. You mean you can find salvation in the law? Well, apparently so. Jesus just suggested it. That's the only thing that was written at this time. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You remember Job's real cry was that God was aloof. He was set apart. He couldn't really understand 
what it was down here, what it was like down here for a businessman. He didn't have eyes like us. Didn't have skin like us. Not a man like me that I might question you, is what Job 9 says. So he says, and who is my neighbor? In reply, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I don't have time to tell you this whole story, but suffice it to say this is an ugly road. Jericho was a symbol of the world, and Jerusalem was a symbol of the kingdom of God. And he is on the right road, but he is headed the wrong direction. People are supposed to migrate from Jericho up to Jerusalem. They're supposed to ascend up to where God is. But instead, he's sliding the wrong direction. Perhaps you might call this backsliding. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and he went away, leaving him half dead. I've had lots of fun with this through the years and sermons. There's only one way to be half dead. It's kind of like being half pregnant. How do you do that? You're either dead or alive. How do you get half dead? He's got one foot in the kingdom that is death and one foot in the kingdom that is life and he's on the fence. He's already lost half the battle and doesn't know it. But God's intervening. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Job says, hey, God, you don't have eyes of flesh like me. You're not one of us. Most human beings will pass right by your misery. They will pass right by your hurt because all they care about is the mildew growing in their own temple. They care about an exchange rate. And if you're beaten and naked, they don't see anything you can give them. A priest, this is somebody who's paid to be in the service of God, and yet he doesn't care. So too a Levite came to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. Levite. Levite's another special class of Israelis. Somebody who should have cared, right? Because they had eyes of flesh just like each other. They were skin of the same skin. People of my own clan. But he didn't care. To a Jew, the furthest thought from your mind would be that a Samaritan would help you. The furthest thought from your mind because he's the least like you. He'd compromise with all the nations. He's no longer distinct. Had all kind of ugly racial slurs for them. When I read this this morning, I thought about Job. He says, God, if you were just a little more like me, maybe you'd understand what was going on. You know, maybe if you were a priest, maybe if you were a Levite. God was the furthest thing from what he could see and touch, just like a Samaritan would be to a Jew. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to the man where he was. Came to where the man was. When the Word says that the Word became flesh, this is like the Samaritan coming to where we are. What's that next thing say? And when he saw him, he took... God is not indifferent. He's like this Samaritan who takes pity, considers you a neighbor even if you don't consider him a neighbor. And he cares about where you're at and what's happening. <coughs> He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. said, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses that you have. The God of the universe has been insulted by mankind over and over and over again. If something bad happens, we say it's an act of God. If something good happens, we say it's Mother Earth. And yet, He put on flesh and came to where we are. And He took pity on us. And He has bandaged our wounds. And He has paid a price that is not silver, saints. It was His skin for your skin. Why, why does God let this happen? He's fixing it. Give Him time. It starts with you. And once you recognize what He's done for you and you live like it's true, you go out and do it for other people. And then you are God's hands and feet on the earth. At the heart of the matter, the thing that made Jesus the angriest in all of His ministry was when people who represented God cared more about themselves than they cared about other people. He ordered that temple to be thrown down every stone because God is not about selfishness. He's the God who takes pity on strangers and shows them love. Even if they're sinful and corrupt because He knows He can change them if they will just admit their need. That's the God we serve. We need to close. I want to read you one last thing that God said to Job. This is Job 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? How arrogant is it for a human being to look and say, Why does God let this happen? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord said to Job, Out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man that I may question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Please ask yourself a question the next time somebody is saying, Why does God let this happen? The next time they are charging God with wrong, are they not condemning God to justify themselves? Just like Job did. I was taught that a certain scripture in Timothy meant that God would never disown you. I think when you read it in light of Job 41, it has a whole different ring. Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure with Him, we will also reign with Him. If we disown Him, He will disown us. If we are faithless, He will remain faithful, for He cannot disown Himself. Saints, you do what you do. You can love Him and cling to Him, or you can disown Him, but He will never change who He is. He will not be condemned so that you be justified in the eyes of the world. He already did that when He gave skin for skin. Now He is a righteous standard. And we stand with Him or we don't. Romans 3.3 3 said it this way. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? 
What if people don't do what God wants them to do? Not at all. Let God be true and every man is a liar. So that you would be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. I've reached the place in my walk where I don't even feel the need to answer the skeptic anymore. Because I realized that the question that that woman asked Anne Graham had more to do with her heart than it did with God. How can God let this happen? Is a smokescreen. It's a smokescreen for the people of God that don't do what God wants them to do. And it's a smokescreen for the lost person who wants to justify themselves by charging God with wrongdoing. What you need to know about Jesus in any and every situation is that He gave His skin, His life, for your life. And that we owe Him everything. And when you don't see the temple cleared yet, it's because He's making the whip. You better pick your side because it's coming. Stand up. Let's pray.